I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Wadundi and Bububun people of Wudichup in the southwest Bujara region in Nungabuja, also known as Margaret River. I acknowledge their continuing connection to the land, waters and community. I pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is episode number 66. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. And today I have the pleasure of chatting with Lauren French. Lauren is a recently graduated sexologist holding a membership with the Society of Australian Sexologists. Lauren has a real passion for sexuality education, as well as helping individuals or couples through a multitude of sexual difficulties and experiences. Lauren creates a warm and inviting space for clients to feel comfortable to share and be heard. All sessions are held with a judgment-free space as Lauren welcomes all diverse sexualities and varying individual experiences. She also works with Body Safe Australia, or sorry, Body Safety Australia, a social enterprise protecting children from sexual abuse with whole community solutions. Lauren works with all genders, orientations, and identities, and offers a judgment-free, safe space for all beings. She's queer-friendly and works with clients in any aspect of sex and sexuality. She believes that sex should be able to be discussed openly and that everyone deserves to have a pleasurable and enjoyable sex life. She specializes in sex education and empowering individuals to be less goal-oriented and more pleasure-oriented. And you can find Lauren on Instagram, at lauren.french.sexologist. And in this episode, Lauren and I talk about the nuances of her work as a sex educator, as well as her life as a proud First Nations woman. We also discuss where and how these two experiences intersect. Lauren was very uh, generous with her time uh, and her energy, talking about her own family and her own connection to her lineage and and culture and uh was very it was very educational for me as well which was really valuable uh, so i really enjoyed talking to lauren i actually went to university with lauren that's how we know each other and um i hope you enjoy listening to this because it is such a valuable conversation so enjoy purpose of foreplay is to cause the vagina to lubricate so that the penis can penetrate more easily. During sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, sperms are placed in the vagina of the woman by the penis of the man. Let me at this point make a clear-cut scientific statement. Masturbation is not harmful. Uh, and I always start with a bit of an invitation. It's, a, it's an invitation for you. Um, I'd love to, to hear from you about your a bit of your story, uh, a bit of the work that you're doing, maybe why you're so passionate about it. And uh, and I also like to add in there, like, where do you want to go with this work as well? Where do you see yourself going with this work? I think that's a, um, a nice invitation. So I'd love to hear from you a little bit about that and, um, yeah, just learn a bit more about you. Amazing. Well, uh, to start, I always like to acknowledge the land that I'm on when I'm doing a bit of a talk. So I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this beautiful land in Melbourne that I am on today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. I would like to acknowledge my elders from the Gaijara tribe and acknowledge where I call 
home, which is on Larrakia land, which is in Darwin, for those listening that don't know where that is. I would like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. I would like to acknowledge that people listening may be dealing with some of their own intergenerational trauma, and I would like to do a call out that this is going to be a bit of a safe space. I'm sure we'll have a bit of a conversation about it, so just a pre-warning for those people. Be kind to yourselves as you listen to when I share anything about my story, my history, my family, it can be hard to hear sometimes, particularly if you identify with it. So I want to acknowledge all of your incredible, amazing listeners out in the world and to be kind to yourself as you come with me on a bit of a bit of a story, bit of a story time. And obviously acknowledging where Cam is calling in from as well. And Cam, if you want to do a shout out to your lovely land. Yeah, so um, it's the uh, Woodachup or Margaret River area of the southwest region of Western Australia and the uh, people here are the Bibbulmun people. Amazing. It's funny, I know this is already starting off on a bit of a tangent, um, <laughs> but I, as a sexuality educator, so when I go into schools and I go travel all across Victoria, I go into New South Wales and I've been into Tassie, so I do quite a lot of travelling. And I try to always make sure I've looked up and I know what land I'm on when I'm going to do a workshop and a presentation, but I always like to ask the educators or the people that I'm working with, like, oh, so, you know, who are our elders, what's our land, and I'm always a little bit sad about how often I get kind of blank looks on faces or the classic, oh, um, hmm, who is it again? Someone get that book in the corner. Oh, what does that say? Oh, it's these people. Oh, yeah, and it's just this clearly a lack of understanding of why it's important to know where you're on and actually conversations with elders and relationship building. And so that's just my little mini tangent to start of um, if anyone doesn't know what land that you live on, it's a very cool way to start learning a little little bit more about First Nations people. Mm, yeah, thank you so much. And, and is that a, I, I mean, this is a loaded question because I know the answer, but is that a an acknowledgement of country? Is it a welcome to country? And, and what's the difference between those two things? Yeah, so I just did an acknowledgement because I am not a Wurundjeri woman. This is not my country that I'm currently living on. I, My country is um, Karajara and Larrakia land, which is Karajara is kind of near, it's outside of Broome actually, um, and then Larrakia, so in Darwin. So if I am on Garajara Larrakia land, I could potentially do a welcome because I'm going to welcome you to my land. But because this is actually not my land, I cannot welcome you onto it or welcome in that way. But I can acknowledge that I'm not on my land. I'm on somebody else's land and the amazing ancestors and people of the Wurundjeri are all around me and looking after me. So that's your difference. If it's your land, you can welcome someone onto it. If it's not your land, you acknowledge it. Same as if I came to your house, like I wouldn't come to your house and then say, oh, Kim, welcome to be here. Like, like I want to welcome you into your own home because that's weird. But I can acknowledge, hey, you've got a very lovely home. Thank you so much for having me here. So that's kind of your difference when you look at it that way. Yep. Yeah, lovely. And, and and that would be the reason why it is inappropriate for a uh, white person to do a welcome to country. A hundred percent. And realistically, when you're doing welcomes, usually elders do welcomes. So even though I like, if it was my land, I could welcome you, realistically, elders welcome you. And I, at current this point, am not an elder. And so that is not, uh, that is not something that I necessarily have the ability to do either. I think as well, you know, like my acknowledgement, I always listen to how I'm feeling. My acknowledgement changes every day. But, you know, 
it's pretty short, sharp and sweet, I like to think. Um, but when you hear like a full welcome from an elder, you know, that's time, that's story, that's, you know, that is a proper yarn, which I always find funny because people are like, wow, that welcome went for ages. And I'm like, yeah, as it should. Mm, <laughs> mm. I'm wondering, do you, do you, does every old or older person become an elder? Um, look, yes and no. And I think, look, and I can, and I just want to preface everything I talk about First Nations people is from my perspective, my family, you know, my understanding. I do not speak for all First Nations people. Um, again, goes without saying, but I like to say it anyway. Every elder Aboriginal person, First Nations person in Australia is an elder, and we always respect our elders. Elders are wisdom. Elders are story keepers. However, I'm trying to think of a way of describing it. It's not like hierarchical but it's like some elders will take on the responsibilities of potentially eldering the community or um, being, you know, spokespeople to, as you talk about, you know, the white Australian or going to those sort of things. So like in my family, uh, like people might be similar ages, but maybe there's like one particular elder relative who tends to do the, do the ceremony, do the conversations, do that kind of a thing. So and they would have realistically the most knowledge. They're the holder of the most of the knowledge. But, you know, I do think there's, you know, a bit of split. Sometimes there'll be elders who are more, you know, like I have some elders in my family who know more about uh, traditional medicine. But they might not necessarily be the, the elders that you go to for other information and other stories. So a little bit split. So, yes, everyone is an elder of wisdom and knowledge and respect, but not necessarily the way that I think a lot of white Australians view like an elder as if it's like a job title. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And and thank you for, um, thank you also now and also for the next hour because um, I recognize that I'm a, I'm a white dude. I'm a cis straight white guy. Like I, I'll, I'll own that, that's that's my demographic. And and um, and I appreciate um, you taking the time to educate because I know, you know, it's not your responsibility and I, I know that I shouldn't expect to be educated. Um, I should go out and, and seek the education myself. And um, so I want to kind of preface this whole conversation by saying, look, I, I, I recognize and I acknowledge that it's, it's energy consuming and I, I want to, you know, I, I just want to extend my appreciation for that as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, it is, but I'm glad to do it. And, you know, I'm an educator in a lot of spaces in my work. I'm happy to take on that role at times in the appropriate setting uh, when I think it is going to be really beneficial. I think it's really great for you to acknowledge that. And anyone listening, you know, I think if you want to learn more, like outside of what we talk about today and in your life, I always 100% first off recommend you go and do your own research. Just, you know, not that Google's amazing, but you can look stuff up, find some really great, amazing pages, um, you know, Black-owned organisations to give you that information uh, before you go to your one Aboriginal friend and ask them to explain history, colonisation and intergenerational trauma to you because that's quite a lot to put on your one friend. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, thank you for, for um, speaking into that. And I'm wondering, um, you said you're an educator in other areas of your life and other areas of your work as well. And I'm wondering um, if, if you're open to sharing about some of those other areas. Yeah, of course. So I 
where so in my work I kind of have two main roles that I work in so I'm a sexologist in private practice with the Australian Institute of Sexology and Sexual Medicine where I see individuals couples clients on a range of spectrum of issues such as trauma such as sexual pain such as desire you know your very classic therapeutic space to work through whatever kind of sexual stuff people are going through but then I also work for a non-for-profit called Body Safety Australia in which I am a child sexual abuse prevention educator as well as a sexuality educator so I get to do the very fun sex ed as I still call it in schools I get to work with I work with realistically five-year-olds through to year 12 students as well as teachers as well as parents on just talking about puberty bodies consent respect for relationships just how we can all create an environment where children can learn about their own bodies in a really shame-free space and get the actual information they need to go forward and start making some really healthy decisions about their own life Mm, yeah lovely and and i have a really soft spot in my heart for people that teach sex ed at schools um, because it's so needed and it's so underfunded and it's such a uphill battle, um, especially when like, uh, and you just mentioned, you know, sometimes you're talking to, to five-year-olds and I know that there are people out there that go, oh, what the? what the fuck does a five-year-old need to know sex education for? And because um, I've, I've met those people and I've spoken to those people and the, the idea behind comprehensive sex ed is something that I'm you know, 100% behind. And, um, and so I was wondering to, to people that may be thinking, well, what does a five-year-old need to know about sex ed? Um, could you speak a little bit more into that? Oh, 100%. And just to, yeah, uh, calm everyone down. I'm not teaching five-year-olds Kama Sutra or, you know, different oral techniques or anything like that. Because, um, yeah, 100%, as you said, not what it is. Comprehensive sexuality education is about meeting people where they are and what the information they need. My five-year-olds need to learn about the correct names for their body parts. We need to be using our penis, vulva, nipples, bottom words. Um, we need to be doing that in a shame-free space because I don't have a weird name for my elbow. It's just my elbow. And these are non-sexual body parts for children. As adults, we sexualize these body parts. We kind of go, oh, I can't talk about a penis with a child because that's super inappropriate. But actually, it's so important that they know those words for their own empowerment to actually feel, you know, self-love and understanding of their own bodies, as well as it's a really important part of child sexual abuse prevention as well. Like, uh, it's also important that we teach consent. I mean, consent, particularly consent education at the moment in the media, let's not pretend that's a softly loaded question. Uh, it's huge everywhere. And when I talk about consent, everyone instantly thinks I'm talking about sex, which yes, with my older students, as we get older, of course, we're talking about sex with my five-year-olds. I'm talking about hugs. And I'm talking about the fact that a five-year-old's body still belongs to that five-year-old. And people should still be asking consent and permission to give or receive touch. That includes family. That includes people around that child, you know. And it's funny, I think sometimes when I talk to parents particularly, it'll be like, yeah, of course, my child's body belongs to them. But then when I dig deeper into that and go, okay, well, do you ask permission for hugs? It's family. And everyone's like, oh, no, but that's just family. Okay, cool. So what then we're actually teaching that child is people have to ask to touch your body unless it's your family and close friends. And we know statistically the rates of family abusing children. We know the rates of intimate partner violence. And so it's perpetuating this idea of 
it's only the stranger or that random person you don't know that has to respect your body. Actually, the people around you don't. And we don't want to, we don't want to have that conversation be the normal. We don't want to have children have that belief. So if we start at five years old with them, then it creates this amazing foundation where that child knows their body is theirs. They know what consent is. Also means it's easier for them to start being empathetic and respectful to other people's bodies which is so important as they get older as, you know, I want, I want them to have all the foundations for dating and their first sexual relationships well before that's even something that they have to consider. When I go in and just work with year nines and it's the first education they've ever had, instead of building up a foundation, I have to tear down walls of things they already believe to then build it up. Yeah. Yeah. Where, um, again, this is a loaded question. Um, where do you feel like a lot of those, things that you need to tear down those existing beliefs where do those come from oh they come from yeah it is a bit of a loaded question <laughs> um, <laughs> they come well look and this thing i don't want to demonize any particular groups because you know it's always the classic it's not everyone and it's not but they're getting these ideas from home from family and they're getting it from media and just living in a society that is quite heteronormative quite patriarchal has you know a lot of ideas about what masculinity is, what femininity is, what sexuality even is. So, you know, if we don't have any discussions with young people until they're in year nine, year 10, year 11, or even year 12, well, like, I don't want to say it's too late, but like they've, they've already got a core belief around what that is. And if their belief is that, well, if I'm dating someone, they're my property and therefore I can do whatever I want, okay, well, that's a belief you're going to have to spend a long time getting rid of before you can get to respect and empathy. So, look, yeah, it's a conversation of how, what environments they're growing up in, not even just what's being talked about at home, but the relationships they just see because children start to learn what a relationship looks like just by watching it, viewing it, you know, they're little sponges. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not necessarily that things are being said wrong, though that obviously happens, but it's also just what they're watching. And as well, I go into classrooms and they want to talk about The Bachelor and maths and, you know, that's a... That's an interesting way to learn your respect for relationships. Mm, yeah. Do you use that as a bit of a launch pad to then talk to them about actual respectful relationships? Oh, 100%. And also like just movies and TV shows generally, I often get them to tell me like the latest movie or TV show or something that they've watched. And I ask them if if they want the, the kind of relationship that's depicted. Is that the relationship you want to have? And a lot of the time they're like, well, no. They fight all the time. It's really, and, you know, and we talk about the fact that, yeah, they fight all the time and there's like big drama and conflict because it's entertaining. And if everything was, and if you actually just filmed someone's relationship, a lot of it would be very boring because it's, you know, doing the dishes, having dinner and like sharing your two cats. Like that's, that's all it is. It's not explosive arguments and uh, weird dramas and et cetera all the time because actually a lot of the time that will build up into a relationship that isn't what we want. Mm, yeah, there's no camera angles and backing tracks and sound bites and, exactly. yeah. Exactly. And you can't just be like, oh, well, let's roll the tape and rewind what did you say kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I often think that uh, media literacy education is severely overlooked when it comes to not even just kids, but just people in general, like across the board. Um, I feel like we're woefully undereducated on media literacy and and there's just um like i've been because i'm i'm about to become a, a father um my, my fiance and i are about to become parents and and one of the things that <laughs> thank you very much um <laughs> one of the things that we're like looking into is like okay well you know obviously our our kid growing up in 
the you know the age that we're growing up in is going to be exposed to media it's going to be exposed to technology it's going to be you know it's just around us it's it's ubiquitous so um what can we do to maybe mitigate the really powerful influence that those messages are going to have on um having a little boy uh so on our son and um and two things kind of come to mind one was like just diversifying the amount of media that he has access to. So um, stuff that maybe wasn't even available back when I was growing up. I'm, I'm looking at all these amazing books and kids TV shows and things that you know are coming out by um, like queer people are making amazing stuff. People of color are making amazing stuff. Like there's, there's all this incredible diverse um, media. That's like one thing. And then the other thing was um, something that um, I can't credit them because I've forgotten who they were. Uh, but it was this idea of like, if you're going to, I think it might've been actually in um, in Peggy Orenstein's book, Boys and Sex. But um, she was talking about like how this mother who she'd been speaking to was like, um, look, her son's 15, 16. He loves like rap music, like heavy rap music. And, and she was like, look, in the car, you can listen to your rap music, but every single time that they make a, uh, derogatory remark or they they say something that's misogynistic or they say something that's sexist or whatever it is we're going to stop and we're just going to have a chat about it and so obviously every 15 <laughs> seconds she's stopping this i was about to say tape. it's just like a stop start yeah exactly and so and she she made the same rule with movies and things as well with her i think she had a younger daughter she was saying and so they would watch a disney film yeah sure we can watch this film but every time that something pops up that's an unrealistic representation of like um women's bodies or you know, a, a relationship or something acting out they pause it and they go hey what do you think about this look at this i think that with a little girl she talks about like hey look how look how big this cartoon character's eyes are do are your eyes that big look how small her waist is are you is your waist that big um and kind of talks about things like that so um so that was like the other idea that i had with regards to like raising a, a kid to be kind of critical about the media they're consuming in a in a like not in a academic kind of really heady way but at least in like a experiential like oh i can deconstruct this as i'm watching it type of way and appreciate it for the media that it is not for the real life message that it is because I, so many times i see people saying oh it's just media i know it's just entertainment i know it's just for fun but then they act out exactly what they saw on tv and it's like sure you can conceptually say that but what you're actually doing in reality is exactly the same so maybe you haven't split that up as much as you think so Oh, yeah, and also the fact that people think they have control over the media they consume when actually a lot of the time things are curated for you. I've been having a lot of conversations recently about porn, so, you know, particularly when I go into schools and we talk about porn um, and porn consumption, and, you know, people are already probably going to say this, but really obviously to clarify, uh, I am not pro-porn nor anti-porn in any way, shape or form. I am porn is not for children, uh, which is my my go-to phrase because, you know, you always have the debates of it's awful, it's terrible, and it's great and empowering. And I think both of those spaces have merit. Uh, but when I go into schools and talk to kids, my biggest thing is porn is not for kids, porn is not educational. And that's and this idea of uh, critically being able to understand media and the fact that, yes, porn is real people having sex, however, it's people having sex for entertainment with particular camera angles, with potential devices and things being used that you don't see to set up a situation that, comes across maybe to you as realistic but isn't actually the way real people have real sex and this idea that even you know like when you go on to you know like 
if you go into porn or if you, you know, type porn into Google, the first thing that's going to come up isn't ethical porn or feminist porn. It's going to be Pornhub. And the fact that when you go onto Pornhub, you know, if you're watching porn on that, eventually it will start curating videos that it thinks you are liking. So you might be thinking, oh, I get to go on, but I get to pick what I watch and I'm not going to pick anything I don't like. Yeah, okay, but actually there's an algorithm, there's things being used to give you and to get you to continue to watch things. So, yeah, you have control, but you actually don't have control of what's being presented to you. Yeah, thank you so much for saying and speaking into that because um, even though we're recording this today and I just shared with you that we're celebrating a year of my podcast, I to celebrate the year, I did my first ever solo episode, which was it ended up being two hours long and it was just about all my opinions on porn and why and, and Love it. yeah one of one of them was as you shared i'm not anti-porn i'm not pro-porn i'm definitely anti-anti-porn that's definitely a position that i hold um but i can't be pro-porn because i'm not 100 i don't think all, all porn is good so it's like when we reduce it down into this simplistic binary it, it doesn't do the whole conversation any service um, and then something else that i spoke about is um video suggestion algorithms and um, and I compare it to YouTube and the, the stuff that's been observed with regards to like increasing radicalization on YouTube and um, in terms of political ideology. And it's like probably something similar that's happening. We don't know because we can't study the Pornhub algorithm. There's been people that have tried, but we actually don't know. And, um, and so it's just, yeah, there's just so much nuance to the conversation that t- totally gets skipped. So yeah, porn literacy is another thing. So media literacy extends to porn. It does indeed. It is a type of media, uh, you know, and I think it's about, as you just said, it's not being anti anti you know, like all those things, you know, in a way you can almost view it as a tool. It's like how you use it. And I think it's the same with people that, you know, are you pro-technology, anti-technology, et cetera. Technology is the tool. What are you using it for? You can use it for education, for connection, for et cetera, and you can also use it in negative spaces and for negative ways. So I think 100%, as you said, it's not a blanket statement. It's not something you can just go, yeah, this is all all the same it's something you have to understand how it reflects to you and you know how i how porn works in my life is not going to be the same as how it works in your life and it's, it shouldn't be because we're all different mm, totally totally um something that i i'm curious about and i this is one of the reasons why i wanted to to really have a chat with you is do you um do you have to tailor your approach or tailor the things that you um speak about when or if you have um like an Aboriginal student in your class or if there are a couple of Aboriginal students in your class, is there a, is there a different approach that you take? Um, it depends. So I've done, so if I'm in a school and I've got Aboriginal kids just in the class with me, I don't adjust anything I'm doing. However, I might create the space a little bit differently. I'll probably talk a little bit more about being an Aboriginal person myself because I want to set up that, you know, safe spaceness. You know, I'm going to be very honest. Not everyone clocks me as it. Uh, it's kind of that joking white passing kind of moment, which does mean that sometimes, you know, people get quite shocked or they're kind of like, oh, that's not how I thought this conversation was going to go. And so then when I can talk really openly about uh, my connection to my family and culture and my identity, makes those kids feel like this is a bit of a more safe space to have this open conversation. I have done instances where I've done particular workshops with just Aboriginal kids and then occasionally what we might do is have instances where we do, uh, you know, um, where we have kind of like girls' business, boys' business kind of thing and we separate for some of the conversation. I'm not a big believer in separating puberty, sex, any of these conversations entirely. Like when I go teach sex ed, you know, sometimes parents will be like, so at which points are you separating genders? And I'm like, well, I'm not. Because one, I don't want to gender any of the kids that need to hear things that 
I might assume they don't. Uh, but also, if you're trying to teach empathy and respect, how can you do that if half the class doesn't know what the other half of the class is doing? Like, I hilariously, we had growing up uh, when I did sex ed in schools, they 100% split us up in gender. And I've never been more annoyed by the fact that the girls, so the group I was in, was not, a, we didn't learn how to use condoms. And I was so mad because the boys got to do a condom competition and I was like, I wanted to do that. I wanted to learn how to do that. Why is it assumed that just because I don't have a penis, I'm never going to need to put a condom on a penis? Thanks for that. Um, but also what happened is the boys learned nothing about periods or menstruation or female bodies. Yay. Um, but there was actually a conversation where the, it was like a swimming carnival type thing after we'd done sex ed and someone, one of the girls wasn't swimming because she had a period and one of the boys just went, but it, it stops in water. Oh, jeez. And like fully 100% believed that women's bodies just stop dripping blood because you're surrounded, you're like submersed in water. Wow. And I was just so confused. And so, look, I'm not going to lie, it's another reason I'm a big you know, I'm so passionate in this space around education because, like, that's ridiculous, but it's just a lack of education because actually, unfortunately, that poor person was never put in a position where they got the information they needed to understand women's bodies and those sort of situations. So anyway, tangent. Um, but, yeah, so but if I'm talking just with, like, if it's a full Aboriginal community, there are certain instances where you want to make uh, safer spaces and sometimes having all the girls together, all the boys together, uh, particularly when you're talking about each other. So I did this really great activity where we split the girls and the boys and we asked each group what pressures do they feel as a girl for the girls' group and what do they wish the boys knew about them. And the same for the boys. What pressures do they feel as the boys and what do they wish that the girls knew about them. So we give them the separate space to really be open and honest with each other and themselves. And then we come back all together as a group and we share. So I think when we do split it that way, you know, that's a cultural safety thing, but then you always bring it back together and you need that group discussion because there's stuff in there that everyone needs to hear. So yeah, those little differences, um, if anything, might just like, like, just my language changes a little bit. I don't know if anyone's, if we've talked about the, um, uh, you know, as a, as a Aboriginal person who grew up in Darwin, when I then moved to Melbourne and it was a very different group of people I was around and I, you know, did my undergrad, I have a master's degree, you know, you, you white your language, but like when I talk with my family and whatnot, I'm not always using very articulate phrases you know, you, you transform into a bit of a language. It's always the joke. It's like you start talking more like how you grew up. You're talking with your mob, you're, you know, you're just having a yarn, you're, you know, your aunties and, you're, you know, it's very that kind of more language. So I think sometimes if I'm in a group of just Aboriginal kids, I slip more into how I probably sounded more growing up or how I talked to my family more. Yeah, wow, wow. I, um, I also have a question around... Um, uh, it's, it's around language as well. And um, I've, I've noticed we've been using the word um, Aboriginal, but I also, when I went onto your um, social media, I noticed you using the, the, the term First Nations as well. And I'm wondering, is there a, um, is there a preferred um, term or is there, uh, is there another term? What's the, what's the difference between the two? Um, it's one of those things where I think every Aboriginal and First Nations and Torres Strait person kind of has a different connection to the language um 
like I know some people who just say like would just say I'm a Karajara Laraki woman like that's all like wouldn't even use words like Aboriginal um, First Nations because realistically they're white words that are and not necessarily like placed on people I definitely think in the space that I work in I think when I'm talking I grew up with Aboriginal like as that word so I use it a lot uh, but I know in a lot of spaces people uh, I don't want to say react better but it's a little um I think I don't want to say like a fad uh, but I think people are getting more into the First Nations word, like saying First Nations. Obviously, when you say Aboriginal, you're excluding Torres Strait Islanders. Um, so I think First Nations is a bit more all-encompassing of that. Uh, I think as well it can be a little bit more all-encompassing for the people who maybe don't know if they have Torres Strait or Aboriginal heritage, but they know they're somewhere in there um, because, you know, like for so many of us, history has really, you know, has been erased for a lot of it. So... I think maybe having an identifying phrase like First Nations is a little easier than because I know for a lot of people, uh, myself included for many years, uh, without having the full history of your family and where you came from and your mob and where you're from, because like as like First Nations people, as Aboriginal people, when you meet another mob, when you meet someone else and you're both mob, the first thing you ask is where's your mob from? Because that's how you connect. You connect with who your people are, where you're from, you know, connections. And if you have no idea where that is, that can be really hard. You can feel very like an imposter in your own skin. It can feel like you, you can't step into the space because how do I, you know, prove who I am? It's like when I, it's, you know, anytime I have conversations around kind of like, you know, settling government, uh, jobs even, that ask for certificates of Aboriginality, uh, that's a real uh, I have many opinions on those. Um, but what that is, is that that is a white person deciding that here's a form you have to be able to hit the basis of to be able to say that you are Indigenous, to say that you are Aboriginal, to say that you are First Nations, which actually completely does not understand what being an Aboriginal person is. It's not just a piece of paper. It's not even just about, because then as well, people, and because I am because I'm a lighter-skinned person, I always get the question of, but how Aboriginal are you? Like, what a, what what percentage are you? Um, what's your, oh, like, where's that, you know, as if because to make them feel better of what box they're putting me in because I'm articulate in speaking, I have a master's degree, I, you know, have all these things that for a lot of people they don't associate with First Nations people. So they have to, they want me to have this tiny little percentage which also makes them kind of go, oh, so you're like, you know, you're this much or you're this without realising that, yeah, I might be, but or whatever percentage that is, but it's about your connection to your country. It's about your connection with your family. It's about that whole side of it rather than me having to prove on a very annoying piece of paper who I am. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for, for speaking into that. And I, I spoke with another um Aboriginal woman uh, this morning actually um, for the podcast and um, she shared with me that like she wasn't always connected to her country and, and her family and, and her traditions and uh, it wasn't until after um, she graduated kind of high school and university that she felt the desire to do that and, um, and I kind of wanted to ask you about your own experience and your own journey has it been something you've always been connected to or has it taken a while to kind of get into it's been something I've always felt a connection to. Uh, it's been a journey, though, and I think, I think for a lot of people, and I'm, you know, I have 
our family's part of the stolen generation in Australia. So there's a lot of intergenerational trauma in my family and a lack of knowledge of our own family. And that's always really difficult. So uh, I grew up in Darwin and we have connections so to Larrakia people who are in Darwin. Uh, but that's not where my poppy uh, and my poppy's mum are from because they were from Karajara lands, which is outside of near where Broom is. However, when my poppy, who's that's the word for my grandfather, so when his mum uh, was taken from her family to be put in a mission and was then taken to Darwin, uh, that kind of, that knowledge of was lost so, you know, and in Darwin, we were able to connect uh, with Larrakia mob. We've, like, married into Larrakia mob. So, like, you know, it's all very big in there. But that connection, which is what kind of my mum, me, our family kind of from, that was lost for a very long time. So it was growing up, it was that kind of thing of, I, like, you know, I can remember from, like, year two, like, you know, I, I, I was Aboriginal. I was Aboriginal kid, Aboriginal family, you know. It was, you know, the the my, like, uncles would come into the school to do like spear throwing and like talk about like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I knew what that connection was, but at the same time there was a lot of shame and a lot of uh, not going into details of things to better assimilate into white Australia. So my grandfather for a very long time, you know, didn't want to talk about being Aboriginal, wouldn't even, like, as a simple thing, like, didn't want to even put it on the Australian census because actually he didn't do it for so long because he was just assimilating into being a white Australian. His wife is full-blood Chinese and, you know, so we have a real connection to Chinese community. Um, and it was easier in Darwin at the time to be Chinese for him and for them. So that that's just what you did. You know, when I talk to people about that, that seems ridiculous. Why wouldn't you put it on census? Well, I mean, you could put cattle on the Australian census before you could put that you were Aboriginal for many years. And so it took us a very long time to work that out. It took until my auntie, so my eldest, my mum's eldest sister, who's a Aboriginal elder with the Red Cross in Darwin, uh, she, because of her position, she was able, we were able to probably when I was in, oh, I think like late middle school, early high school, so like year nine or 10, actually probably like year eight or nine, we were able to track down Poppy's mum's uh, birth name or given name because they changed her name uh, when they took her to the mission and that sort of thing. So we had to track, so she was able to go through the records and track down where she was from and, and the mission and then track back. And we finally, when I was about in year eight or nine, worked out where our mob was actually from. So it wasn't until then that I actually knew I was from Karajara lands, that, that that's where we're from. I'm very, very, very grateful and thankful that my poppy, who has now passed, but before he did, when we kind of all found that out, um, my auntie was able to take him to broom and then to go travel and to actually meet those people and the funniest thing and the funniest story is that when they got to broom and when they got to that area my poppy was walking around and someone came up to him and went oh are you are you so and so's relative because you look just like them and so the family of ours that were still there that were grown, grown up and, and were still there actually looked so much like my poppy and like the family resemblance was just uncanny 
and that insane connection of, oh, here's our mob, here's our people that we just, and you know, Poppy at that point was in his, you know, 70s and he'd had no idea where his mum was from or where the family was from. And so from that point we've had a lot more connection with family. You know, we've always had Larrakia connection and, and that sort of thing, but I think as well it wasn't until I moved from Darwin to Melbourne to study that I realised what connection I was missing and what I didn't even realise I was getting when I was just in Darwin around my family and and having that. So I think in the now, I don't know, seven, eight years I've lived in Melbourne, I think I've been reaching even more and more for that connection, for my history, for that knowledge, for connection, just because I, you know, I feel distanced by land because I'm on the complete other side of Australia right now. Uh, But also, you know, I think as I've gotten older, I've wanted to know more and more. And mm. I think I, I keep learning, you know, because when you're young, they don't want to tell me when I'm a kid, like, oh, by the way, your great-grandma was, you know, stolen from her family and then taken to a mission and then she was trained as a slave, basically. And then, you know, she had to go somewhere else and be very whitewashed and, you know, like, and they changed her name and, like, you know, that's all super heavy. Yeah, right. So, like, the family, you don't talk about it, but then you go to school and, history is whitewashed all you learn about is explorers and then I get to like year 10 history where I'm just starting to really understand what the stolen generation was for my family what my like you know just identity stuff and then my year 10 history teacher like in conversation because we were learning about the stolen generation found out that I was part of the our family was part of the stolen generation and she like stopped the class and was like, oh, so Lauren's just, Lauren, do you want to come up the front and can you just tell us your story, like your family's, because Lauren's part of the stolen generation. Oh, God. I was like, oh, cool. That is the most unsafe space for you to put a young person to then me have to in front of my entire class and like people that, you know, might not even know that I'm an Aboriginal person and I'm, you've just like outed me and now I have to talk about trauma and you have no understanding of what that was. So shout out to that teacher. So thank you for doing that. So, yeah, so I think it's a journey I'm still on and I think it's, you know, life's a journey we're all still on, but I think I'm definitely still on this journey of feeling really connected and I, you know, I have some days where I feel like, oh, maybe do I know enough to, it's so funny because it's like do I know enough to be me but, like, do I know enough to sit with you and have a conversation about Aboriginal people? Do I know enough to, you know, am I connected enough? Do I have enough of that in me to do that? Which I think is so funny because, you know, of course I do. But I think when it's when all that history has been taken away from you and you haven't had the opportunity just to sit with your entire family and talk about where you come from because actually you had to fight and, like, really, like, grab at things to get even a tiny bit of information, like, that's a really hard place to be in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And, um, yeah, I really want to honour the, the, you know, the the trauma that you you kind of just shared and the and the vulnerability that you've you've had so i really appreciate that and and like i'm and i this i know this is from a place of privilege but i'm i'm very interested in like anthropology and um traditional customs especially as they relate to like sexuality and and more specifically to to masculinity as well because that's kind of my area of of interest and what i like to talk about and, and research and i've i've you know looked academically i've looked for books i've looked online i've kind of scoured various corners of the internet and um 
and it's very difficult, if not near impossible, to to kind of find any information about, I guess, like traditional customs or traditional beliefs around, um, like, uh, I guess, around First Nations or Aboriginal um, ideas and understandings of masculinity and, and sexuality and and anything that is is not written or spoken about by a Aboriginal person or a First Nations person. It's it's by secondhand by. Uh, by a white anthropologist who's come in and, and been an observer. So, um, yeah, it's it's yeah. I mean, I feel I feel saddened by it, and I'm you know kind of this third party person. So it's it's um, yeah. I really don't have an understanding of of that intergenerational you know loss. I suppose. So I um yeah. I really want to yeah just kind of speak into that. Yeah. And I think as well, I have a lot of people who sometimes ask me like, oh, like. Uh, not so much that they can't find it, but more like, oh, I've asked my like Aboriginal friend or like, oh, or maybe you have asked an elder. It's like, oh, I'm, I've asked them, you know, all these questions about cultural traditions or history thing. And like, they're not telling me. So like, why aren't they telling me this information? And one, I think normally two things are happening there. One, I think a lot of the time we expect information just from asking, not understanding that actually, do you have a relationship with these people? Like, don't just call an elder and ask your question. You need to sit down, you need to have a yarn, you need to have a cuppa, you need to like actually build a connection with them. Don't just expect to go and ask a question and get an answer and, you know, you get to go off with that, um, you know, piece of history that we have had to fight to keep just because you wanted to know the answer. But I think as well when you ask an Aboriginal person a question around culture and history, and they don't give you an answer, uh, be aware that they might just not know because actually that's been lost and they actually have no idea. And I get that a lot of people asking me of like, oh, but don't you know this or like why don't you do this or know that or, you know, et cetera. It's like, oh, well, because they actually like stole my family from itself so we didn't get to learn that cultural knowledge that wasn't passed on and because we do pass things orally it's all through stories like if that isn't told it dies and the fact that our language was just also eradicated so how do you even tell the story if people don't understand you so yeah so then I think sometimes this lack of what you just talked about the fact that it doesn't exist anymore because it, it has been lost and there is a lot of sadness and grief around the fact that we may never know those parts of history and, you know, parts of ourselves, which I definitely think is, you know, something I struggle with at times when I'm searching for my, about my own family or culture or just about anything in history and realise that, oh, I might never know that because actually it could be just lost. Though I say lost, I feel lost is a very passive word. It's eradicated, I feel, is the better word to use. Yeah, that's <laughs> pr- yeah, probably more accurate, yeah. Yeah, and particularly around, like, as you talked about masculinity and sexuality, it's so difficult and I feel these days when you talk about sexuality or sex in a context of First Nations people, it's all about deficits. It's all about, you know, abuse or it's about STIs or it's about HIV or it's about, like, just these, which, you know, are important conversations to have. But it's not actually about celebrating anything about goodness or amazingness or, you know, like I always grew up with um, when people talk, you know, like trans and gender diverse you know for so many of us you grew up with your with brother boys and sister girls and like that was that was just fine that was normal and that was that's just the language that you use and so I think sometimes that part of it isn't celebrated that that yeah there is like some acceptance in certain places not all um but I think 
yeah, it's so often focused on current deficits rather than actually what what is done well, what are the great spaces, you know, what are the great queer First Nation spaces that people flock to, like, you know, those those amazing kind of areas that exist. But I think it is hard when you look at history because, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of us are going to find answers anytime soon. Mm, yeah. yeah, and, and, and a lot of those, um, like, some of the resources that I found, as you kind of rightly pointed out, are about um, abuse or STI prevalence and, you know, uh, safer sex education, which is important. But a lot of those resources are, are um, government funded as well. So, um, and so you've got to be mindful of like, okay, well, there's probably like a, you know, some sort of bias or agenda or, you know, some, something to be mindful of um, with regards to like where those resources are actually coming from as well. Mm. And how they're going to be, you know, received and intended, because you know that's not pretend, like you know I know that a, a lot of Australians think that we get a lot of government handouts, and I still get asked all the time how much money the government gives me, or when I went to school how much was getting paid. Uh, uh, just side note, none, because um, <laughs> uh, again, well, that joyful certificate of Aboriginal Aboriginality that is very difficult for anyone to get, by the way. Um, so you don't get anything. But actually, when you when when First Nations people have to interact with things that are government run, government funded, da 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 da, like we can't just pretend the history of how the government sees us, represents us, hears us isn't there. And so, you know, why am I going to step into a space of government people when they're not stepping into my space? Like, you know, it, it's that it's that kind of I think lack of lack of understanding of of having to meet in the middle, having to come into the space, having to show that understanding, not just like, oh, well, here's this information that's important for you to have, so just there you go, without realistically actually communicating with the community you're wanting to talk to. Hmm. And, and you mentioned a really um, important piece, which is like the celebration piece, right? You, you said, you know, oftentimes things are focused on deficit um, within like the context of um, speaking about uh, Aboriginal people, and, and I, I think the same is true in like your other area of, of work, which is sexuality and sex education as well. A lot of it is focused on what could go wrong. A lot of it's harm prevention, you know, risk reduction, things like that. And there's not a lot of celebration in the way that we educate around sexuality either. And, um, and so I'm wondering, do you have an opportunity to, to kind of be sex positive and to be pleasure positive in your, your other work? 100% getting primary school kids to learn the word clitoris is my favorite part of the day sometimes. Um, and just actually talking about what that is and female pleasure and joy. Uh, but also, yeah, talking about things in a, as you talk about positive way, I think it can be said in any space, sex, sexuality, masculinity, fem like talking about strengths, you know, so often, yeah, yes, of course you want to talk maybe, you know, safer sex practices and et cetera. But it's not just, hey, there's this gross, awful STI that's going to ruin your life, so don't get that because, one, that's not true because you're shame stigmaing people with STIs, uh, which some are lifelong and that's not helpful. But also it's about, hey, let's focus on the positives. This is pleasure. This is exciting. This is amazing. And these are things to do to keep you and your partner safer while you have that incredible experience. Or, you know, I think when we talk a lot about, as you said, masculinity, you know, in the particularly at the moment, I'm having to have a lot of conversations where schools are a bit freaked out because consent and, you know, I don't want to have a school, you know, and teach, you know, in that kind of way of, oh, no, we're going to end up on the front page of the Herald Sun because, oh, no, we've got, you know, some unsavory, I will say, 
uh, core beliefs and ideas and attitudes. And I think so often it goes into this point of, you know, toxic masculinity. These are all the negatives. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Yeah, cool. But what do we want people to do? Where are the positives? Where's the incredible, uh, you know, like positive masculinity examples that we can pull from and say, here's an example of maybe where you want to be or who you want to be like. You can't be what you can't see. And if all of a sudden we're raising people that are like, and the only people they're looking up to are sex negative or pleasure negative or, you know, any of the phobias or any of the things, it's like, okay, don't do that. But then what are we telling them to do? Because if there's no, if they can't, you know, picture that into an actual concrete example or behaviour or, okay, no, I don't want to rape someone, great, but how do I not? Or, like, how do I get pleasure, positive sex for my partner? Like, I feel that's the conversation that so often gets missed. Mm, And I I notice that in the the men's groups that I run is I I ask them, you know, we we do kind of a bit of a um, mind map of all these anxieties that exist um, for these men in this particular group. And, and oftentimes one of the anxieties that gets thrown into the ring is like, I don't want to be that toxic, you know, dude, I don't want to be this fucked up, you know, guy who crosses a boundary or who, who doesn't, you know, who does something wrong. And I don't want to hurt you know my partner or hurt, you know, if I'm having casual sex, I don't want to hurt these women that I'm having casual sex with. And, and so there's a lot of like fucking fear and anxiety about like, okay, now I know what it is that I'm not supposed to do where where do i go from here like what's the i know now not you know what i can't do what 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 can i do what should i do how should i show up and and so that's a lot of the work that i think i totally agree with you needs to be done which is modeling healthy examples of male sexuality and, and sexual expression and alternative models of male sexuality and sexual expression it's one of the one of the um beautiful things that i i see in like more diverse groups of men where there's queer men and and men of color in there is that there are masculinities not just like a masculinity that you have to kind of aspire to there's this beautiful diverse array um, that can be really inclusive when you start to open up the group i see a lot of men's groups and this is not a necessarily a, a criticism but um i do see a lot of men's groups that are very heteronormative and very white and like that's great that there's a space and i understand that you know kind of having that familiar space can can help but there's so much value in opening up those containers to to be more diverse and to be more inclusive and that's something i'm I'm really trying to push for for the kind of men's work or men's group um area yeah 100 percent. and i think you really hit the nail on the head of i think a lot of that fear at the moment of but well, i'm definitely hearing of this idea of you know we don't want to be rapists we don't want to you know, we don't want to put anyone in that position. You know, I've I've read recently of a lot of, you know, articles and interviews of men who have reflected and realised that they probably did have some non-consensual sexual behaviour or that which at the time they did not reflect on. And I think as well it's because a lot of the time we talk in consent in black and whites. People are like, it's an enthusiastic yes, yes, or it's nothing. Yeah, cool. But also that completely ignores a conversation around power in a relationship and the fact that, yeah, sure enthusiastic yes is great but actually what what's the safety of the space that you're getting that yes in and actually are you aware of what power you are bringing into the into the situation that might skew the scale so that yeah maybe a person says yes but maybe that's out of fear of this to the ability to say no and actually if you're not aware of what your power is in the relationship then you might not always understand how you need to 
reevaluate your behavior. And I think for our, our young men at the moment, one, you know, male is power, male is privilege in our society at the moment. Just how we're looking, really. And so if young men don't understand that, because, you know, some people think power, it's like all about money or age and da-da-da, and that all plays a part as well as sexuality, as well as religion. But at the base, if you're going into like, let's say, as you talked about, heteronormative relationship, man has the power in that space for that dynamic. There's, you know, it's not that same understanding of risk assessment as that woman may have to do. And if that man is not aware of what that situation looks like from that perspective, they might, again, it's that they don't know what to do. They know that I'm not going to grab her and like, you know, physically in their ideas, like what that rape word looks like. But they don't actually know all of those, like what actual consent getting is, check-ins and how to actually make that, you know, a sexy part of the experience, you know. Not just the, oh, we have to sign consent forms now. Don't get me started. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's a big gripe that I have with the whole, like, it's almost like, I don't want to say it's anti-consent, but it's kind of like this whole dismissing of like, oh, now we've got to like, now I've got to get a a non-disclosure agreement and like this fucking sign thing. And it's like, fuck man, just firstly, no. And secondly, shut up. (laughs) Fucking PC culture. (laughs) Oh, we got to do it all. Yeah. And I always have that real like, that classic Australian bogan accent that comes out. That's where it's coming from for sure. Yeah. 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 But it, but I think it's that, and I think a part of it's funny though, I think a lot of that mentality comes from fear, comes from, because they're projecting it like, oh, snowflakes or whatever, like you can't do anything, you know, that kind of conversation. But what that's happening is they're going, well, because in their brain it's like, well, if I can't even trust a yes, that's terrifying. As and also, I think a little bit at times this idea that women are just waiting around to like falsely accuse people as if that's like something that we just sit around talking about in our yeah tea yep. sessions for all the advantages that you get from doing that. Oh yeah, all that power trip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so great. Uh, no, of course not. And like you know, we know statistically that actually false accusations are very very rare, and actually the amount of accu- you know reporting that doesn't happen is so high. And you know, like we know all this. But I think when no one, and, and I, it's funny, this is such a like parallel because people don't like doing this in this context with like consent and sexual assault and, you know, behaviour. They also hate doing it around colonisation and treatment of Aboriginal people. No one likes looking at themselves hard in the mirror and reflecting on the fact that actually maybe things they've done haven't been great or actually maybe they actually do have to monitor behaviour and how they act. So it's the same with people, as you said, men who don't want to have to say, oh, like uh, signing a disclosure, because actually that means they have to make sure that their behaviour is okay. Same way that I have people when I talk about colonisation, they go, oh, but it wasn't me. Like, come on, that was ages ago. Get over it. It's because, you know, no one feels comfortable looking at themselves going, actually, maybe my life is easier because I'm white. Oh, actually, yeah, I didn't do it. But, yeah, my family probably did help in the genocide and elimination of your people. Like, that's uncomfortable. And no one really likes feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, we'll do whatever we can to make sure that we don't have to feel, yeah, that discomfort. A hundred percent. It's the same when I hear people saying things like, oh, you know, like acknowledgements, you know, the, you know, obviously back to the beginning, I did an acknowledgement. And I still hear people go, oh, people have to do acknowledgements all the time now. 
you know, oh, like, you know, we have to do it for anything. And, but at the same time, I do agree that it shouldn't be done unless it's being done for the right reasons and with understanding. And I definitely think a lot of people use it as a tick box moment. But again, no one wants to actually sit in uncomfortability in an acknowledgement. Acknowledgements can be rough to sit through because actually not only is it trauma, is it history, if you're a white person listening to that, you know, you have to sit with the fact that we're talking about things directly related to you. And, yeah, it was a long time ago, but it actually still influences my life and other Aboriginal people's lives and, you know, we're not starting a conversation about death and incarceration, but I'm not going to pretend that's not a thing on my mind or the fact that, you know, all of those things that still happen today. Yes, I can vote. Yes, I have rights. But let's not pretend that my life is the same as, you know, someone who hasn't had my background in history. Yeah, thank you for speaking into that. And I, I am mindful of time. Um, and I wanted to to ask or invite because um, I don't know I can't check the demographics of my audience I know that I can break it down into men women and uh, you know, the other categories non-binary um, and um, but I don't know the the race or ethnicity or culture of my my audience I can kind of guess at it but um, there may be there may be a um, young or even not so young Aboriginal First Nations person listening and um, I'm, I, I wanted to to invite you or ask you uh, if you had any words of wisdom that you'd like to share for them, for, for that group of people listening, uh, if they are, hopefully they are. Um, I, yeah, I'd love to give you the floor for, for the last few minutes to close us down. Yeah, no fucking pressure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, first off to young First Nations people, sex is cool. Uh, we should learn about sex. Sex is fun um, in a consensual, beautiful, amazing way. Uh, no, in all seriousness, I would tell those people, do not judge yourself harshly in being early in your journey. Do not compare your journey to others. We are all mob. We're all in this together. It is a hard enough battle against the world and against what we're up against already. Don't battle yourself with it. You're allowed to not know things and you're allowed to have days where you feel disconnect and you're allowed to have days where it's really difficult to sit with your your culture and how it relates to the white world that we walk in. A lot of people, you know, talk about walking in two worlds, walking in white man world, walking in mob world. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that and I think, you know, those two worlds are not completely separate. There are lots of interlinked moments and, you know, sometimes you might feel like you've had to put a white hat on and that can feel really dishonest to yourself. But then, so, but at the same time, that might be the best case scenario for you in that moment to do whatever you need to do. So I think my biggest thing is do not judge yourself harshly and do not uh, condemn yourself for needing to continue to learn and to listen and to experience and to feel. You know, I think there's that, you know, I, I've never felt so connected to land as I have when I had to leave my land. So, you know, like, we're all still we're all still on that journey together so you know i think support i think be kind to yourself do not you know I, this is clearly an instance where i have been the educator but you do not have to be the educator in every space and it is okay to not have to speak up if you are in a space that is not safe do not judge yourself for not putting yourself in a dangerous position because you feel like oh well i'm aboriginal so i have to say something right now look after yourself 
and be kind to people around you, to yourself, to your mob, to your family, to your pets. Be good people. Mm. Thank you so much. And thank you for educating and for fielding my questions and um, and just kind of creating the space for me to, to kind of follow my curiosity as well. I really, really appreciate you spending the time and the energy doing that. Always. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. I'll uh, hopefully rule. Uh, I'm looking forward to speaking to you again real soon. A hundred percent. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. No worries. <laughs> See you, Lauren. <laughs>